We continue this morning with our Lord's Prayer in John chapter 17. We'll make the three points. Uh, They pertain to the glory of the church, of which these men with Jesus are the nucleus. The, The points are on the back inside page of your bulletin. The community of Christ's joy, the community in the world, and the community sanctified and sent. So John 17, beginning of verse 13, is where we are. First, the community of Christ's joy. Thoreau famously said that most men live lives of quiet desperation. I'm sure you've heard that before. I think there's a fair amount of truth in it. The desperation cannot really be covered over, at least completely, even in an age where we can amuse ourselves to death with distractions. Even if you're not sure Thoreau is right, what I think is undeniable, even if human beings are not desperate, is that they do not, or they rarely, Live lives full of joy. And it turns out that that, that's a, it's not a thing that Jesus thinks is a romantic dream. He thinks it's possible. And he's deeply concerned with it. We've already seen him earlier in this same, on this same night, in this same farewell discourse say, that he speaks these things, that his very joy might be in us, that our joy might be full. Again, it's important to see this, that Jesus does not want to send you packets of joy. He wants his own joy to be in you. And here... In this text this morning, it's quite interesting. In the middle of a prayer, Jesus prays about why he's praying. We do that sometimes, I think. He prays about why he's praying. He says, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world. In other words, he knows that the disciples will be encouraged just by listening in. And so he says, While I am still in the world, I say these things so that, so that. Now notice, this is the purpose. So that, I say these things so that they may have the full measure of my joy in them. I mean, do we pray that way for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Or for ourselves? When's the last time you asked that the full measure of the risen Christ's joy would be imparted to somebody in the body of Christ? Jesus, in his last hours, prays so that we might have the full measure of his joy. Earlier he said, I pray that my joy would be in them. But here... A little later in the evening, a little closer to his arrest, the language is even more extravagant. 
he wants disciples to have the full measure of his joy. Seven times in this farewell discourse, seven times Jesus mentions joy. It's like it's a thing kind of radiating, pulsating under the darkness that's closing in around him. You can sense it if you read the prayer. The full measure of joy mentioned a full seven times. So what what does this mean? It means that Jesus is deeply concerned that the Christian community be exuberant. Be delighted. Because he expects us to partake of his own indestructible gladness. It's not a statement about our capabilities or our temperament or our natural inclinations. He's done the work that the Father's given him to do. And he's entered into everlasting glory and joy with the Father. For the joy, he says, the book of Hebrews says to us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The joy that was set before Jesus is the joy he now enjoys. And so that joy is central to Christ as the enthroned king who's left the world. And then he fills the church up. When he sends the Spirit, it's an infilling, a flooding of your heart and mind and life with the full measure of his joy. It's an audacious prayer when you think about it. For Jesus to say to the Father, I want them to have the full measure of my unquenchable resurrection joy. Jesus prays this for the church in his last hour. So that joy is, if you will, a mark of the true church. It's a sign. Jesus knows that his triumph must, indeed it shall produce a community buoyant in the joy of Christ. Now, of course, he doesn't have in mind glibness or anything like that or or triteness. He doesn't even have in mind human happiness. He doesn't even have in mind cheerfulness. He has in mind no superficial substitutes for the real thing, which is joy itself. In other words, you can't conjure this. I remember... A number of years back, there was a funeral. It was a funeral for a well-known figure of Congress. And the thing was, in my humble opinion, a travesty. It lacked all sobriety. It was full of all kinds of often frivolous joking, running political commentary, plenty of laughter. You know what was missing? Joy. And you know why joy was missing? Because mourning was missing. Life is is hard. Jesus knew and knows its harshness. 
Uh, He knows its many, many indignities. He knows we all suffer and we all groan. There's nothing sentimental here. There's nothing Pollyanna-ish. Is there any figure in history less Pollyanna-ish than Jesus of Nazareth? There's nothing of that here. Jesus is talking about a joy which stares right into the abyss and doesn't blink and prevails. It's really an astonishing thing when you think about it, right? It's it's another one of those things that Jesus says where you think, can he possibly mean this? I mean, has he read nothing about all the wars of the 20th century? Or all the brutal individual wars we lose on a daily basis? Jesus knows that the opposite of joy is not sorrow. He is the man of deep, unquenchable joy. And what is another designation for him in Scripture? Man of sorrows. And Paul says, and here you can see the paradox at its sharpest. Paul says this. We are sorrowful. We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about skirting anything. He's talking about going through. Neither the darkness of the world or its hatred or its trouble or the malice of the evil one. None of these things, he says, all of which he's addressed in the prayer. None of them can quench the joy of the church. Because it's not a joy achieved by skirting the grim realities of life. It's a joy achieved by one who was laid in the grave, executed unjustly. So the joy here is joy of resurrection, joy of ascension. Joy of a victory which Jesus has already made visible over the very darkness. And thus the church, the Zion of God, is called, get this, in Psalm 48, the joy of the whole earth. The church is the secret mystery, the taproot of joy in the earth. And this place then, Psalm 36, another psalm tells us, is the place where we drink of the river of God's delights. Now you may come to church for many different reasons, but one good way of articulating why you come is you want to drink of the river of God's delights. Right? God pours a river of delight out through his spirit by word and by table. And he feeds his people with a holy feast. It's his own personal delight and his joy to host you. And this kind of joy, this kind of joy is a magnet to the world. There's so little of it out there. So the father hears. He hears the son's prayers. We have great confidence in that. Right? The father hears the son praying, and the the son has prayed for you and for us together to have the full measure of his joy. His joy 
is now to be ours. Right? We opened this morning with the Easter hymn. And that hymn says in it, notice these words, Christ our Lord is risen, our joy that hath no end. It's not this. It's not Christ our Lord is risen, and now we have joy that doesn't end. It's Christ our Lord is risen, and He is our joy that has no end. And we will close with the words of another hymn, which say, Solid joys and lasting treasures none but Zion's children know. It is at the depths of the heart of Jesus that you be filled up with His joy, even in the midst of darkness and heartache and brokenness, and even in the face of death itself. So the second thing then to note here about this, the glory of the church is the church's relationship to the world. Look at verse 14. I've given them the word. The world hated them. There's a cause and effect relation here. The word is given to the church, and it provokes the world's hatred. Jesus has already done this in this prayer. He's already braced you for opposition. He said, the world rejected me, it'll reject you. The disciples are not above the master. There's a kind of enmity or hostility that's divinely imposed. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Between the church and the world. Between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Hostility is a basic state of affairs. It's important to get this when Jesus says he wants you to have the full measure of his joy. Because we think this is a zero-sum game, right? Well, if there's all this enmity and hostility and friction and fighting and difficulty, Jesus puts the two things together. You're going to have the full measure of my joy, and you're going to enjoy hatred from the world at the same time. So, he says... That this hatred is because the church is not of the world. Notice that. He says this, any more than I myself am of the world. It's not, the point Jesus is making here is not simply that we have a different set of values from the world. It is not that, that that's false. But Jesus is saying something a bit sharper, something rather more fundamental. He was not of the world, neither are we. In other words, he's saying this, your citizenship, your life, your treasure are elsewhere. Your origin, your destiny is elsewhere. But not of the world does not mean out of the world. Look at verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, meaning out of the whole created order. I'm sure you're familiar with the saying, right, that we're in but not of the world. I think everybody's heard that. We're in the world, but not of it. Let me suggest that that well-known summary is not quite right. It has the accent in the wrong place. It stresses the in the world part. So it reads sort of like this. We're in the world, but we're not of. We don't share the world's values. Notice, Jesus says something much sharper than that. He stresses the not of part. 
We are not of the world any more than he is of the world. He actually says this twice in three verses. And notices it sandwiches this prayer to not take us out of the world. Look at the text, verse 14. They are not of the world any more than I'm of the world. Then he says in verse 15, he prays that we not be taken out of the world. And then in verse 16, he repeats the dominant theme. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. So what's Jesus' point? His point is this. We are not of and we are not out of the world. Now that's less catchy, I, I, I admit, right? Imagine going around saying we're not of and we're not out of. People are like, what, is, what does that mean? <laughs> we're not of and we're not out of. But that's what Jesus actually says. You're not of and you're not out of the world. The not of part is so real that Jesus has to pray for, to the Father to not actually remove us from the world. See, that's the point I want you to see. That the other expression obscures. It is much more accurate to say that we are not of, yet somehow mysteriously we remain in the world, than to say that we are in, but not of the world. One expression, right, requires a displacement. Jesus displaces you from the world. You're not of it, and then you find yourself reinserted in it mysteriously and have to figure out a way to navigate it. The other one settles you down in the world Boom, we're in the world, but we just don't share its values. There are two different ways of looking at this. The church is not of the world. She's from another place. And yet she lives and acts in the world. We've already seen Jesus says there's a grand mission before the church. So he has to pray, Father, don't take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one. Protect them from the evil one. He prays for spiritual protection in the midst of the fray. That's how he ends the Lord's Prayer, right? Deliver us from evil. And Jesus then puts his own prayer into your mouth, right? So that we say, as he taught us to say, deliver us from evil. We saw this last week, but this is a sensibility that we need to recover in prayer. Praying for deliverance from evil, protection from the evil one, so that our prayers reflect Jesus's. So finally, what does he do here? He sends the community into the world. That's our third point. Verse 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So we have this situation, right? We're not of the world, but we're not out of it. So how do we live in it? And again, the answer is the word of God. God's word is the truth, Jesus says, which sanctifies us. Sanctify here means consecrate. It's a sacrificial word. It has to do with being cut up. right? Cut by the sword of the word that we might be placed on the altar and offered up to God like the animals of old were. That's what it means to be living sacrifices. By the way, that's the heart of our worship here, of our liturgy here. You come in and you're cleansed by the confession of faith and the assurance of pardon, just as the animal had to be washed. Then you're cut by the ministry of the word, right? Then you're offered up through the giving of your tithes and offerings and into holy communion with lifted up into Christ. That's why when the gifts are brought forward, we say lift up your hearts. You who have been cleansed, 
You've been consecrated or cut, and now you enter into a fuller communion with God. That's the very heart of Christian liturgy, is sharing in Jesus' own sanctity, his own consecration. But when we talk about being sanctified by the word, it's not just we're standing here or sitting here with our Bibles asking Jesus for help so that we can be holy. That's not, in fact, what's happening. Look at verse 19. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. So what is it? Are we sanctified by the word? Or are we sanctified by the fact that Jesus sanctified himself for us? Right? The answer is both. Both. Right? Jesus sanctified himself. He, he laid himself upon the altar in his agonizing total obedience that you might be purified. So when you hold scripture in your hands and you read it, Jesus is talking to you, saying something like, I've sanctified myself to secure your purity, your radiant sanctity. Now, here is instruction to help you live out my self-consecration, my obedience in your own flesh. That's how important Jesus' obedience is to you. It is his obedience which sanctifies you. It's a beautiful thing. So that in the reading of the text of Scripture, you are driven to cling to the human obedience of Jesus. And thus sanctified, we don't stand apart, right? We're not putting our sanctity on display. This is not a museum. We're set apart for the gospel, for mission, for witness. Right? Jesus sends. Saints are for sending. Sanctity, sending. They go together. And he says it. He says, as you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. Do you know that you are called to continue the mission of the apostles in the world? Well, let us conclude. I want to step back from the text and remind you that in the creed, right, which we'll shortly confess, which we confess with the saints of all the ages. There's four ancient marks of the church, right? We believe the church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. In the ancient church, those were called the marks. One, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And Lord willing, we'll talk about oneness in the future because Jesus talks about it a lot right after our text. But you can see the other three clearly on display in this text. Right? The church is holy, She's holy in her very root. She's not of the world. Even more deeply, she's holy because Jesus consecrated himself for her, for you. Right? And the holy people are sent out into the world, which means you're apostolic. To be apostolic is to be sent. Your holiness is grounded in Jesus. You're, at, you're being sent out. And apostolic is grounded in the fact that the Father sent him and he sends us. And where does he send us? He sends us out into the whole world. And thus the church is Catholic. So one of the things that's apparent in this text is it sort of sums up the Christian life for us. 
What's in the text, right? Sanctification, struggling with the world, sending and service. They're all mixed together, and that's what constitutes life for us. Sanctification, warfare, service. But there's one more thing, lest we forget. Right? In the midst of this struggle. In the midst of it. Not apart from it. In the midst of it. Jesus prays for the full measure of his joy to be in you. You know what the first step, I think, of spiritual progress for us toward realizing this joy is? Is we have a way of making uh, a series of excuses to ourselves that we really can't have this kind of joy while X is in our life, or while Y is in our life, or while this situation is configured this way. Right? And if we're waiting for that, then we're never going to have it. Right? The point of this text is that in the midst, and not apart from everything else, Jesus prays this way. And so we could call joy the fifth mark of the church. It's every bit as important as the other four. And I want to encourage you and challenge us together to pray with our Lord that we might receive and manifest this joy. Because in the midst of all the, the difficulty and the struggles and the service, we are to be people who are spreading joy around, communicating, liberally splashing it as we go. We ought to be such people. The reason for this is simple. Jesus has gone to the Father and he is full of joy. Jesus has gone to the Father and he's full of joy and he's intent on communicating the full measure of it to us. And thus, as we heard in the call to worship this morning from 1 Peter chapter 1, we heard these beautiful words which resonate with what John has written here. And though we do not now see him, we believe in him. And thus we rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. That persecuted, scattered, pilgrim community to whom Peter wrote in 1 Peter. He says to them, he doesn't even charge them. He just describes their life and says, you don't see him, but you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Thanks be to God for the one holy, Catholic, apostolic, and unquenchably joyful church. Amen. Amen.